This weekend, I've been sharing a short series of messages on Christian life hacks. And I was surprised last night, some people didn't know the term life hack. How many of you have heard the term life hack or life hacker before? Let me see your hands. How many of you have never heard the term life hack? Oh, no. A life hack, if you go to Google and type in life hack, you'll usually get a bunch of pictures with short captions that are ways to make your life easier. Simple problems that all of us have, things like your computer cords always get tangled. When you heat up spaghetti in the microwave, it doesn't heat up evenly. Pots boil over. All sorts of simple problems that all of us have. And there are simple solutions that most of us have never thought of before. Life hacks, ways to make your life easier. Simple ways to make your life easier. Well, this weekend I'm talking about Christian life hacks. Ways to make your Christian life, your Christian walk, easier. Last night, I shared a very simple message. Only two points. First point was what not to do. Anyone who was there last night, what is it we are not supposed to do? Don't love the world. Love not the world. We talked about some practical ways in which I love the world, and I'll bet many of you love the world too. What was the second thing that we were supposed to do? Have the love of the Father Father in our hearts, because that is the only way not to love the world. That was last night. Today, and that was, of course, from the gospel, not the gospel, that was from the book of 1 John, chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. This morning, we're going to notice two life hacks from Paul. And I've just reversed the order. The first thing we're going to study is what to do. That's point number one. And the second point is what not to do. Very simple. Only two points this morning. I'm very excited about this afternoon's message. There's only one life hack. But we're going to study together this afternoon John chapter 17 that marvelous prayer of Christ. And I know that each one of you who come will learn something new about John 17 because it turns out that this huge prayer of Christ is prophetic. It also turns out that this prayer of Christ touches on pretty much everything there is in the entire Christian walk. And we're going to notice the overview and then we're going to study only one life hack from Christ to make our Christian walk easier this afternoon. How many of you want to be within God's will? I think most of us. And sometimes it seems that knowing the will of God is hard. Doesn't it seem that way? There's a lot of decisions in life that you have to make. This morning we're going to study something that guarantees you can be within the will of God. Isn't that wonderful? Guarantees you can be within the will of God. Right now, uh, Rachel and I are going through a lot of decisions in our lives. Rachel's my wife, and we have two lovely children. A lot of decisions. And I know each one of you are making decisions right now every day. And each one of us, as we make decisions, I pray anyway, that each one of us want to be within the will of God. Let's pray together now, 
and then we'll notice our first text for today. ask you to bow your heads. Oh God, I ask that you will be present with us here this morning through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will speak through the Bible. The Bible will teach us something new about how it is we can live the Christian walk more simply, more easily, and be within your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me. We're going to 1 Thessalonians. We want to understand how we can be within the will of God, and we're going to notice our first Christian life hack. What to do to be within the will of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm reading verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So there it is. That's point number one. What is the will of God? That you give thanks. Well, that seems pretty easy, doesn't it? If you give thanks, you can know for sure that you are in the will of God because God's will for you right now is that you... Give thanks. In what situations should we give thanks? Every situation. That's right. Be thankful in all circumstances, as the New Living uh, Translation says. So, there you go. That's point number one. That was pretty easy, wasn't it? Give thanks all the time. Who should you give thanks to? To God. It doesn't say that in the passage, but if you look at the verse right before it, it's talking about praying without ceasing. The implication is we're speaking to God... We're giving thanks to God. So giving thanks is linked with prayer. Do you give God thanks in your prayers? You know, I think we do, but I have it on good authority, the book Steps to Christ, that none of us give thanks enough in our prayers. That's what it says on page uh, 102. None of us give thanks enough. Now, I read this passage, and I wanted to understand what it means to give thanks. And I read it, I'm supposed to give thanks how often? all the time. It's kind of like the phrase you've probably heard, I love him, but I don't like him. How many of you have heard that? Maybe some of you have said that. The idea is that this person is not so nice of a person, but the Bible says I need to love everyone, doesn't it? You know, we need to love. And so I love this person, but I don't really like them that much because they're not that nice. And I read this passage about giving thanks the same way. I want to give thanks all the time because the Bible says to, but there's not that much to give thanks for sometimes. So I'm going to give thanks in spite of my circumstances. I'm going to give thanks in spite of my circumstances. Do you know that's wrong? Turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. This is going to take it to the next level. Ephesians 5 verse 20 says, giving thanks always for all things in the name, in, to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how that takes us to the next level? 
It's not just giving thanks all the time. It's giving thanks all the time for everything. That's not the way I gave thanks, at least not in my prayers. We're going to come back to that concept at the end, the idea that we need to give thanks all the time, not only all the time, but for all things. We'll come back to that at the end. Now, if you're anything like me, when you're praying, you thank God for the things that you consider important. And this is kind of just the way humans are. Uh, Jonathan and I were talking last night about how you can tell what people think about all the time. And, And this is a fact of human life. I can know what you think about because it comes out of your mouth. Have you noticed that about people? Whatever they think about all the time, whatever's important to them, they talk about it. You can tell what people think is important. I have uh, one of my surgery partners. Uh, I work as a, uh, an assistant professor at University of Tennessee uh, in general surgery and uh, colon and rectal surgery. And one of my partners in the group I work in happens to be a fan of a certain football team that is going to be playing a game tomorrow. You know, a game tomorrow. And what do you think that this person talks about? They talk about every single player on the team. They talk about the coach. And then I didn't even know. I guess there's offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators and all sorts. They talk about those people. They talk about the referees. They talk about the scores. They talk about the other teams that they played. They talk about football all the time because that's what's important to them. Did you know that you need to be very careful what you think about? There's at least two reasons for this. One, the first reason is kind of funny. Statistically speaking, a large number of people in this room, if Jesus doesn't come back first, are going to end up old and senile. And when you are old and senile, I speak from not personal experience, but I speak from observation. When you're old and senile, the nurses at your nursing home and the family members who come to visit you are going to find out what you thought about your entire life because it's going to come out of your mouth. You need to be very careful what you think about, what you spend your time thinking about, because people will find out, if not now because you're smart and you have a good filter on your mouth, in the future when you're old and senile. The second reason is even more important and less funny, more serious. What you think about changes you. Is that true? By beholding, we become changed. What you think about changes you. I used football as an example. Let me continue talking about that. I don't know how many of you have thought about this, but the underlying principle of that big game that's going to be played tomorrow, and in fact every sports game that ever has been played, the underlying principle is the idea that I need to be better than the other guy. I need to strive to rise to the top. I need to raise myself up. The underlying principle is that principle of pride. You know, that's the original sin. That's the original problem Satan had. And Satan, if you recall, didn't even want to beat God. He just said, I will arise, you know, I'll put my tabernacles on the sides of the north, all those things. I will be better than the Most High. 
No, I just want to be like the Most High. He wasn't even trying to beat. He just wanted a tie. He wanted to raise himself up above where God had placed him. The underlying principle was one of pride. And this is no secret. I mean, this is, this is just basic common sense. What you think about changes you. And this idea that we need to raise ourselves up, it's, it's so common in this world, isn't it? I don't, whether it's your classes, whether it's sports, whether it's the business world, God forbid, whether it's the church. You know, I need to raise, boy, I really want to be a head elder of my church or whatever it is. This idea is so common, we don't even notice it anymore. But heaven looks on it as a disease. And God has committed himself in the great controversy to eradicate that disease. And it's no secret. I mean, this is common sense. If you spend more time thinking about things in your life that encourage the principle, raising myself up, or watching things that encourage this principle, I'm going to raise myself up. I'm going to be better than the other guy or whatever it is in whatever area of your life. Heaven's going to have an impossible time eradicating that disease in your life. That's just common sense. It's up to you. I mean, it's, it's each one of us to choose every moment of every day what we think about. It's important what we think about. It changes us and eventually... It'll come out of our mouths. Let's go back to talking about giving thanks, though. I found out, after I studied this passage, that in my prayers I'm giving thanks, my priorities are all messed up because I thanked God for what I thought was important, and the things I thanked God for was stuff. I thanked God for, you know, my house, my car. You know, thank God that I have a... Family, thank God that, you know, thank you, Lord, for giving me a job. Thank you for helping me pass that test. Thank you for this, that. Those are the things I thanked God for. And is that wrong? No, because we're supposed to thank God for what? Everything, all the time. And that includes the tests and, you know, whatever else it is. But what's really important? Well, the Bible has one phrase that's repeated six times as just one example of something that we should thank God for. I'll bet you know it from memory. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. There's just one example from the Bible of something we should thank God for. David commands us to thank the Lord for he is good. You know, we're going to thank God through all eternity for this. and We might as well start now. The idea that God is good, it isn't only the idea that God is perfect, an ethical perfection, the amazing fact that God in all ways is perfect. It isn't only that. That's true. But this word good has the idea in Hebrew of being pleasant to be around, being blessed, being happy. You know, God's a nice guy. It's nice to be around God. It's pleasant. It's fun. God is happy. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy. Are you thankful for God's mercy? Amen. Amen. All of us depend on God's mercy. The idea is that God is kind. It's also translated loving kindness, bringing together the concepts of God's love, His desire to do good for other people. 
His pity, his favor, you all have heard the definition of mercy, unmerited favor, his grace. God wants to do good for those, even those who don't want to do good back to him. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord for his mercy. And the idea that God will be the same. His mercy endures forever. Specifically, his character has always been this way and always will be this way. His mercy has always been there and it will be into the future. And so I found out that my priorities were all messed up. Instead of thanking God for this important stuff, I was thanking him for these little insignificant details because that's what was important to me. It's kind of like the little boy who gets a Christmas gift box about this big and his dad has gotten this Christmas gift and he unwraps it and it's a bicycle, his very first bicycle. And he pulls the bicycle out of the box and he's so excited and then he starts playing with the cardboard box. And the bicycle sits over in the corner unused and he's crawling into the box and crawling out of it. He's having fun with this cardboard box. You know, that's okay for kids, isn't it? Uh, Michael and Amy are one-year-old and three-year-old respectively. And this last Christmas, they got way too many presents. It was awful. Uh, Michael wasn't quite into opening the Christmas presents by himself, so Amy would give him a lot of help, and he wasn't smart enough to realize that Amy would do most of the unwrapping and that she'd make off with the Christmas present, and he was left with the box. (laughs) But he was happy, and he'd play with the box, you know, and that's okay for babies. But God doesn't want us to remain children in our Christian walk, does he? He wants us to grow up. He wants us to realize what the best gifts really are. And it isn't just passing a test or a relationship. It's kind of strange. When you really think about these passages, God commands us to thank him. Isn't that what the Bible's saying? How many of you have ever sent a gift to someone for their, say, their wedding? How many of you have ever sent a wedding gift before? Okay, some of you are very ungrateful and apparently don't know anyone who's gotten married. (laughs) How many of those of you who raised your hands, when you sent that wedding gift, you included in there with the wedding gift a self-addressed stamped envelope and a thank you card that was blank. And you put that in there with the gift and you sent the gift as if to say, you better thank me for this gift that I'm sending you to congratulate you on getting married. How many of you have ever done that? No one. I haven't either. But isn't that what God's doing in the Bible? He's saying, thank me. It's kind of like teaching kids manners, I think. Michael and Amy are learning manners right now, and I'm sure you've seen little kids like this. When we're eating breakfast, the food stays on the countertop until they say, I want, you know, I want food. How do you ask? Michael says, peas, because that's how he says please. And then he gets his food. What do you say? Thank you. And it's so cute watching them. They're learning manners. They're learning to say please and thank you. You know, I think that's what God is having to do with us. In fact, the very fact that we're told we don't thank God enough, it argues that God has to do this for us. He has to remind us, thank me. There's another reason. If you look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
you'll see that giving thanks is important for character development. You see, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22 is a list. It's almost like a shopping list, I like to think of it. It's a list of seven commands, God telling us to do things. And then the end, verse 23 and 24, the final promise is that God will sanctify us wholly and keep us blameless until the coming of Jesus. That's God's job, but he's given us some things to do to cooperate with him. And in the middle of that list is the command to give thanks. Giving thanks is important for our character development. Let me say this plainly. If you expect to be among those people discussed in this verse that God promises to preserve blameless under the coming of Jesus Christ, maybe you should consider seriously the command to give thanks because it is a prerequisite. It is one of those things that God asks us to do to cooperate with him in this process. Now, giving thanks is always important all the time for everything, but it's especially important in our devotional and prayer life as we approach the end of time. The Bible gives us an example of someone who lived under a death decree, and it gives us an example of their devotional life. Go to Daniel. You all know the story in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. And I'm looking specifically at verse 10. You know the entire story, how the princes got jealous of Daniel and they convinced the king to sign a death decree unless everyone worshipped the same way. It was a government decree about how you should worship. And I'm sure you all have studied Daniel chapter 6 before. Anyway, looking only at verse 10, now when Daniel knew that this decree was signed, he went into his house, his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks. I'd never noticed that before. Before his God, as he did before. What do saints living under a death decree do? They pray and give thanks. You know, talk about all the time under all circumstances. If there were ever a time when I myself might feel tempted not to give thanks anyway. Maybe I do a lot of praying, but giving thanks? What was he thanking God for? I mean, after all. Notice what it says about Daniel's devotional life after the death decree. How many times did he pray and give thanks? Three times a day. That's right. What about before? Three times. Do you notice there was no change in his devotional life? Friends, those people who live and make it through this time of persecution at the end, when there is a death decree, their devotional life will not change. We need to learn the lessons now about how to pray and give thanks. Giving thanks is an important part of a devotional life for those who intend to successfully live during a time of persecution. We need to learn the lessons now because... When the test comes, there won't be any change, at least not in those who live successfully. It's nearly impossible to change and start giving thanks. If, if, think about it this way. If we're not able to give thanks now with all the blessings that we have, how in the world do we think we're going to be able to give thanks then when those blessings are removed 
Does that make sense? That's point number one. What to do? To give thanks all the time for everything. Point number two, what not to do? Well, what keeps you from giving thanks all the time for everything? Go with me to Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 4. Excuse me, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. This shows the opposite of thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Worry, care, anxiety, these are the opposite of thanksgiving. And I confess to you, I fail at this all the time. After four years of medical school, five years of residency, one year of research, and one year of fellowship, I'm finally, I finally got a real job. Uh, it's, I've been working in this real job for the last six months. And it's amazing that when you finally get a real job, after all this medical training and stuff, there's more stuff to worry about. And fortunately, most of my patients have done very well that I've operated on. But even the ones that do well, I worry about them. And, and when they don't do well, when there's a complication, oh, man, then I really worry about them. And then I read this passage. Be anxious for nothing. And I realized my lack of faith. There's an excellent quote by Corey Tenboom that's true. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its joy. Does God want you to have joy? Yes. Goodness, he started the sermon with the mount, on the mount with all of these blessings. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to have joy. And worry empties today of its joy. Also from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 25 through 34. I know that you know this passage. It's Jesus telling us not to worry. I want to read it to you in a modern translation. This is the New Living Translation because it kind of brings it home a little bit more, perhaps. This is Jesus speaking to you. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. When you think about it, there's a lot of things to worry about in everyday life. I remember when I was a medical student here, there was a lot of tests and classes and stuff of that nature. But Jesus gets even more basic than that. Whether you have enough food or drink, I mean, don't worry about whether you're going to starve to death or not. You know, or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about your clothing, ladies? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? 
Don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. It was January 2006, and I was a senior medical student here. And uh, all of you who are medical students know how match day works. I had interviewed at 20 different locations, and I still remember I was at 25251A Lamar Street, right down the street from Stephanie. And I went into my bedroom there, and it was that day, like three or four days before match day, where you check the computer just to make sure you matched somewhere. And then three days later, you are in the room with all the other medical students, and you find out where you're going, right? And I got on the computer, and I found out that I had not matched. And those of you who are medical students, especially third and fourth year medical students, understand what a tremendous shock that was, what a letdown, what a disappointment. It was probably up to that point in my life the biggest disappointment that I had ever experienced. And I remember I knelt down at the side of my bed and I recommitted my life to God and I said, you know, whatever your plans for me, that's, that's fine with me. But you know, despite that, I, did, I, I immediately started worrying because, you know, don't I have the right to worry? I mean, it was about that time, if you want the complete story, I can tell you this afternoon, this also impacted my wife's ability to match, even though we weren't doing a couples match because I was early match and she wasn't. That's, uh, the mechanics of it are too much to explain here. But a fellow medical student shared something with her, and she shared it with me, from that wonderful book, Patriarchs and Prophets. And I want to share it with you because it has something to do with worrying. Many look back to the Israelites and marvel at their unbelief and murmuring. Do we do that? We sure do. I mean, those children of Israel, they were so awful. (laughs) Feeling that they themselves would not have been so ungrateful. Don't we think that about them? But when their faith is tested, even by little trials... They manifest no more faith or patience than did ancient Israel. You know, think about ancient Israel for a little bit. They were tested several times during their wilderness wanderings. They were probably down to about two or three days of water remaining with no prospect of water on the horizon. You think you might worry? Here, I just just hadn't matched. You know, I'd probably scramble into something, even if it wasn't my first choice. I had all of California's massive social safety net to keep me from starving to death. (laughs) And all of you who live here know, I mean, I got free phone service. I got all sorts of free stuff because I was poor. (laughs) California will not allow me to starve. And here I was doubting God. Boy, I've got nothing on the children of Israel. When brought into straight places, they murmur at the process by which God has chosen to purify them. Do you want God to purify you? Then why murmur about the process? Though their present needs are supplied. I had a full cupboard. 
I had California social safety net. My present needs were supplied. Many are unwilling to trust God for the future, and they're in constant anxiety lest poverty shall come upon them and their children be left to suffer. I didn't even have kids at that time. It was just me and my wife. Some are always anticipating evil or magnifying the difficulties that really exist so that their eyes are blinded to the many blessings which demand their gratitude. The obstacles they encounter, instead of leading them to seek help from God, their only source of strength, separate them from Him because they awaken unrest and repining. And here's the appeal. Do we well to be thus unbelieving? Why should we be ungrateful and distrustful? Jesus is our friend. All heaven is interested in our welfare, and our anxiety and fear grieve the Holy Spirit of God. No place should be given to that distrust of God, which leads us to make a preparation against future want, the chief pursuit of life, as though our happiness consists in earthly things. It is not the will of God that his people should be weighed down with care. But our Lord does not tell us there are no dangers in our path, but he points us to a never-failing refuge. And then it quotes uh, Matthew 11, 28, 29. He invites the weary and care-laden, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Lay off the yoke of anxiety and worldly care you have placed on your own neck, and take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. I must say that my wife learned these lessons better than I did. I'll share with you a birthday card she wrote to me just a few months later. Eric, looking back over your 28th year, I believe it was the best year of your life. (laughs) True, we met with a lot of disappointments. You don't know what your career is going to be, and we've lost all our wonderful friends at Loma Linda. But Eric, look at how God is blessed. We had to move away from Loma Linda to a place where we knew no one. He gave us an opportunity to build faith that he will lead us even though we cannot see the way. He tested our resolve to follow him no matter what. Remember, Eric, it is not in the easy times that we prove our faithfulness to God. It is when the road is hard and we do not like the way he is leading us. My birthday wish for you is that God keeps bringing trials into our life. (laughs) And then she says, okay, do not stop reading. And she actually made it bold. This last test was basic. We knew eventually we would both get jobs. It was not so much a question of if, but where. However, I felt my faith rapidly growing as I saw God work out everything for his good. It was hard, but look how much closer we are to God and to each other after going through it. Eric, we need more trials. (laughs) I want us to continue to draw closer to God and rely wholly on him. You know, friends, I can testify that... um, Philippians 4, 6 is true. We don't want to be anxious for anything. That's what not to do. Don't be anxious for anything. That's the second Christian life hack. There is a promise attached to this. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you have a trouble with your thought life? Do you have trouble controlling your thoughts? Is your heart attracted to the wrong things? It is heaven's peace that you need, heaven's peace and love in the soul. When we put away worry 
and we have continual thanksgiving towards God in all things, for everything, surrendered completely, accepting His will for our lives, the peace of God, beyond being this wonderful emotional experience, which it is, it is the mechanism whereby heaven protects our minds and our hearts. We need to be we need to have this peace as a daily experience in our lives. Jesus promised in John 14:27, "Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you." And he he explains, it's not like the world's peace, not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So what is Jesus' peace? Where was his source of comfort, his source of tranquility, his source of peace? This is a wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 71. This is a very famous quote. The Father's presence encircled Christ, and nothing befell him but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. Here was his, Christ's, source of comfort, and it is for us. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. The blow that is aimed at him falls on the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Whatever comes to him comes from Christ. He has no need to resist evil, for Christ is his defense. Nothing can touch him except by our Lord's permission. And all things that are permitted work together for good, To them that love God. I don't know if you really believe that. I know at times in life I'm not sure I really believe that. But friends, if we abide in Christ, everything that comes to us comes from Christ. This was Christ's source of peace. And this can be our source of peace as well. I I guess I've caught a glimpse of a whole other way to live life. Completely free from worry and care. No anxiety, no worry. Complete trust in Jesus, refreshed constantly by constantly giving thanks all the time for all things. This leads to the fulfillment of Christ's promise that we can have His peace. It's a gift. It's freely available to all of those who will fulfill the requirements. And this peace is that mechanism whereby heaven guards our hearts, guards our minds, helps us with our thought life. Let's finish with Philippians chapter 5, because I want to read that promise. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, I apologize. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. That's a promise from God. Very simple message. Two things. What to do? Give thanks all the time, in every circumstance, for everything. 
and what not to do, don't worry about anything, ever. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.